Please turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 3 and find verses 3 to 7 where we'll focus our attention in part this morning. As you may be aware of, this is our last sermon in the All the Feels sermon series. I actually, we are actually going to be done today, a false start last week, but we're going to be done today. And we tried to cover these themes uh, biblically, and I'm sure uh, you've noticed we tried to be thorough, but there's absolutely no way we can exhaust these subjects. And I know many of you have expressed the desire for help in these different things. And what has been so encouraging to see is many of you have gotten with other brothers and sisters uh, to pursue help in the areas that you need. There's nothing uh, more encouraging for us uh, than to see the body being the body. And so from your pastors, thank you for doing for doing that. If, that's, if there is something that you're struggling with, one of these uh, emotions, then I would encourage you to find somebody that you know, ask them for help, say, hey, would you rewatch this sermon? As painful as it may be, would you rewatch this sermon and let's meet, help me, help me work through these things that will be uh, very uh, beautiful to the Lord, I'm sure, as many as you've already done that, and some of you will continue to do that. So keep Keep using these sermons. Hopefully they've uh, shown you what we've tried to show you is that the Bible speaks to even emotions and speaks to the things that we so often struggle with and gives us hope where we find there is no hope in our own. I think that's especially true in depression. No matter who you are, no matter the degree of your depression, no matter the frequency or the constancy of your depression, if you're in Christ, the Bible says you have hope. Hope for what? Hope to know more of Christ. Hope to be closer to God, even in the midst of your depression, not merely deliverance. The Bible tells us because of what Christ has done, we can trust that God will not leave us even in the midst of the struggles of our depression. Maybe for you, the sorrow won't lift or the darkness won't break. Our hope is too hard to find. The burden of all these emotions leads to the feeling we often label depression. Depression. It's a fascinating word because it's absolutely unknown to some of you. And for others, it's all you know. Some find depression as a life or death battle. Others barely identify with this sort of sorrow. But regardless, depression is no trivial opponent for humanity. Politicians from Winston Churchill to Abraham Lincoln suffered from depression. Artists from Picasso to Van Gogh, which I find funny because pretty much every artist struggles with depression. I'm just kind of learning this. It's a prerequisite, it seems like, to good art. And I feel like it's because they're trying to understand feelings and trying to communicate feelings. And when we spend a lot of time discussing and struggling over and working to be aware of our heart, we find the struggle in our heart. But Christians from Charles Spurgeon to David Brainerd battled depression and they feared losing to depression. Spurgeon would find himself overwhelmed with what he called the black dog, depression. In his famous work lectures to my students, there's an entire chapter devoted to helping aspiring pastors understand how to deal with their own depression. David Brainerd's journal published that was so profound in the life of the publisher, a man named Jonathan Edwards, it's a war between God's truth and the overwhelming, overpowering sorrow of depression. But maybe you don't have to search the records of church history 
to find the struggle with depression. Maybe it's in your own family. Maybe your family, like mine, has been attacked by a sorrow that not only won't lift, but a sorrow that seems to win as suicide has left a hole that can never be filled. Depression has been described famously like a room in hell and a howling tempest of the mind. But Christian, if you are indeed in Christ and actually a Christian, then that room where hell seems to reside, there is someone there with you. And his name is Jesus. When you feel the howling of the tempest of depression swirling its winds across the barren landscape of your hopeless soul, remember you have access to the one who can calm any storm. And he's there with you. And if you're trying to help someone struggling from these relentless realities of oppression and sorrow that won't lift, I hope today equips you and helps you to labor alongside of them, to come alongside your brother or sister, to help them hang on, to wait on the Lord to work. And if you're caught in the web of despair and shackled to the slavery of your depression, just hang on. Remember who God is. Trust in what he has promised and look to him and what he has done. You say, well, how do I do that? You look to his word As we began last week, there are many opinions and many options, uh, both in the world and in the church, on how to deal with, how to manage, how to defeat depression. But for a son or a daughter, those who claim to be a child of God, how can we really expect God to give us life anywhere else than going to his life-giving word that holds his life-giving message? As we pick back up where we left off last week, considering the practical pursuits of truth that we need to reinforce our sorrow-stricken souls with. Remember how we concluded. We can never allow the truths of the gospel to be far from our hearts. You don't graduate from the gospel. We must preach the truth to ourselves, and we are most effective preachers for ourselves. We must hope in God and not in ourselves. Our hearts are frail, but our hope is as steadfast as the God who promised what he has promised. We must investigate the struggles of our depression, identify the truth, and then mortify the lies, realize that there are things that grieve God's heart, but recognize that that doesn't mean there is no hope. The best way to do this is from Genesis to Revelation, be reading the truth, be reading the gospel truth, the truth that saturates our hearts with the mercy and grace of God, a a good and kind God. And as we do this, we find ourselves equipped to, to tether our souls to the gospel, tie our souls to the gospel. And friends, what is the gospel if not good news? No matter how down or damned you feel, there is always hope in the gospel. There is one to whom you can draw near with confidence and enter the holy places by a new and living way. You say, but it hasn't worked, but Jesus says, come to me. No longer bound to the flesh, no longer held captive by the world because Jesus opened for us the curtain and removed for us the barrier that kept us between, that was kept between God and us. How? How did he do it? Through a program? Through a breathing strategy? Through memorized prayer? Through medication? Through an agreement? No. Through his torn and pierced flesh. By his spilled and shed blood. That's what we remember today. A high priest who died for us. 
A high priest, the only one who is able to take our hearts and by his wounds heal us. And so Christian, if you're downcast and distraught or hope filled with joy, look to Christ and his gospel. It always has exactly what you need. Hold fast to him, the confession of our hope. How? Tether yourself to the gospel. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. If you're there, please stand with me. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. The living, life-giving good news of the only God says this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning. We ask you to give us understanding to give us humility with ourselves, to give us patience with ourselves, to give us grace with others, give us understanding of what we don't understand. Help us to see how not only is there hope, but there's truth that helps. Not only is there a future hope, but there's also a present hope. Father, give us, give us your grace. Allow your spirit to teach us. Allow your grace to train us. Help us as we seek to worship our Savior and King who died for us. Help us to, to understand how we can live for him even under struggle and in darkness. A darkness that seemingly won't lift. Help us to see that we can persevere. Not in ourself. But in our Savior. That we can fight. Not with our power. But with his. Help us. We need it. So we ask in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Maybe you weren't here last week. And it seems like we're jumping into something. We are. We're in part two of this understanding of depression. Last week, we laid the foundation for this emotion. I trust you'll be able to catch up. We began by uh, considering as we seek to apply these truths, we began, uh, we, we started with, what did we start with? I lost my note. Yep, that one's not what we started with. Last week, I can't remember. But we're going to start today with tethering yourself to the gospel This is essential because depression often focuses on what orbits in our hearts. Our lack of 
friends, our lack of circumstances, our struggle with help, those are the things that fly around in our hearts. They're like a fly inside of a bottle. They just bounce off the walls and they're all that we can think about. But when we take our hearts and we tie it to the gospel, we have the hope of what God offers. The good news of Jesus is that we've been made new in Christ by Christ. God has saved us not only from our sin and the wrath that we'd earned that we had justly ascribed for ourselves, but he saved us into Christ and into Christ we're in his family. And we must demand of our hearts that we view life through the lens of the gospel's effects. Depression tells us we're captive to sin and unable to be free. The gospel tells us we've been set free and saved from the slave market of sin, Galatians 3.13. Depression tells us we're alone. The gospel tells us we're adopted into God's family and can never be alone again, Galatians 4, 7. The depression tells us God is against us. The gospel tells us we're not God's enemy, but God's friend, John 15, 14. Depression tells us we're far from God. The gospel tells us we're unable to be separated from God, Romans 8, 39. Tether your soul to the truths of the gospel. Then you can ask yourself, who am I in Christ? And you can answer with the truth that God gives. Not not how do you feel, but what has God said? Ask yourself and let God answer with the truth of the gospel. Tether yourselves to the gospel. Sixth, mortify the idea of penance. This may not seem immediately connected to depression, but when guilt is overwhelming, often the idea of penance is pervasive And it brings about depression. We imagine it like this. The worse I feel about my past, uh, then the more pleased God is or the more I've earned comfort in the present. That's not often what we would say, but that's the truth that's resulting in our pursuit of penance. But feeling bad about the past, something that you've done in the past is, is not a way to glorify God nor is it a way to fix the past. The root of depression, this root of depression and penance pays a misunderstanding of grace and forgiveness homage. The reality is grace is free. Grace is unearnable. You cannot earn grace. No matter how bad you feel about your past, feeling bad about your past will not make you worthy of grace. Same with forgiveness, except for forgiveness is in fact earned. It just isn't earned by you. It cannot be earned by you because it was earned by Christ. Forgiveness can only be earned by the perfect sacrifice of Christ, which has already been accomplished. So if you're in Christ by grace, through faith in Christ alone, your sin has been forgiven. Then you don't need to worry about the past. You don't need to fret over the past. You don't need to feel bad over your sins in the past. Why? Because God has dealt with them. God has dealt with your sin in the past. And God has moved on from your sin in the past. Your offense was against him and he's done with it. Are you? Your sin is as far as the east is is, is, is from the west. You understand what I'm saying. Whatever that is. God has moved on from viewing you as an enemy and a sinner to viewing you as a, a son or daughter and saved, a saint. Set apart for good works. That's, remember, that's the saint idea, the holy idea that you've been moved out of the realm of enemy into the realm of useful, 
for him and his kingdom. Don't, don't fail to see the gravity of action that God took so this could be true. God didn't look at you and say, man, you know, that one I like, let's just call it good. That's not at all what God did. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 to 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Weak in what sense? You were unable. But when you were unable, Christ was able, and he died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 6 to 8. God didn't change his mind about your sinful past. God didn't wait for you to think, man, my past was so bad. I really feel bad about it now. Okay, now I'll forgive you. Jesus' death, God's conquering of your sin, came about by his crushing of his son. And that death was enough for God to move on. It must be enough for us. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 to 5, Paul, he gives us a theological argument against your constant sorrow over past sin. Uh, It gives us a, a truth to use to move beyond what we struggle with in the past. Your sorrow will not, cannot, never has helped the past. But why? Romans 8, 3 to 5. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. What's the point? God has done what we could not. God has done what we would never be able to do. God has done what your sorrow can't accomplish. There's no penance. That works. Depression as penance is an offense against God. It's not a service to him. Repent of your sin, but don't wallow in the pitiful mire of the past. Jesus conquered the pitiful mire of the past. Jesus has lifted you out of that into his kingdom to be his. It's interesting. Christians are funny people. Some Christians, they act like the past is like a badge of honor. Like their past life, man, they were cool sinners. What's wrong with you? Kidding me? And then other sinners, Christians, they look at the past and like they can't move on from it. Both of those are wrong. Because God has saved us out of those things. He's made us a new creation in Christ, not to be stuck in the past and how cool we were, not to be stuck in the past and how sinful we were, but to live in the present for Christ. Depression as penance goes nowhere. He didn't save you into sorrow. He saved you from sorrow. He didn't save you to leave you. He saved you to make you new in Christ. And in Christ you find life and joy. And seventh, if we're going to pursue godly growth in our depression, we must, how about this one, not neglect our body. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 reminds us That our bodies can be used for righteousness and unrighteousness. There's a connection between body and soul. Absolutely. We must not fail to remember that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within us. We are not our own. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Obviously, there's a, a specific application in that passage but the truth remains, our body and our soul are connected. We, we have to be careful with how we 
live. But how does that relate to the sorrow-laden person? Sometimes a sorrow-laden person just needs to do the next right thing. Maybe you could look at it like this. Set your alarm and actually get out of bed. Put your alarm somewhere where you can't hit the snooze. Snooze is a tool of Satan. I don't know if you know that, but it, it absolutely is. Don't sleep when you should be awake. Make an appointment in the morning. Get accountability. Take a walk. Join the Y. Learn to swim. I mean, you don't need to be Fabio to get out of depression, okay? You don't have to go crazy, but sometimes you need the blood pumping through your veins. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Use it. Allow God to help you. Maybe your depression is in part because of the limitations of your body. I get that. Maybe you're depressed because your body can't do what you want it to do or it can't do what it used to do. I feel for you. That is no excuse. Limitations are not prohibitions. I'm amazed by Johnny Erickson Tata. I don't know if you know her. She's a quadriplegic, amazing woman, sister in the Lord. She paints with her mouth. Do you know why? Exercise. That's humbling. In part to fight depression. Maybe that doesn't identify with you. How about this one? Spurgeon, who we all know is a chubby bearded man like myself, was admired by many for his perseverance in depression and his own battles. He writes about them with the struggling, with the aspiring pastors in his care. And he says, a a day's breathing of fresh air upon the hills or a few hours ramble in the beech woods, umbrageous calm. You have to Google umbrageous, but it would sweep the cobwebs out of the brain of scores of our toiling ministers who are now but half alive. A mouthful of sea air or a stiff walk in the wind's face would not give grace to the soul, but it would yield oxygen to the body which is the next best. Some of y'all need some oxygen. I'm with you. Just do the right next thing. Don't neglect your body. Go to the doctor. Get wisdom. Take walks. Simple, small steps always, always, always produce more than no steps. Eighth, pray when you don't want to. If we're seeking to grow in our depression, you have to learn to pray when you don't want to. Too often our feelings rule. And when we don't want to pray, the feeling overrules the truth that we should be fighting for and begging God to fix. And all of a sudden, instead of grasping the truth of God, we're gripping firmly our own sorrow. And that sorrow has its grip firmly on the captain's wheel of our ship. When you don't want to pray, remember God is still watching. God is still caring. God is still listening. God is still loving. God is still calling you to himself. Psalm 56, verse 8. Listen to this. The psalmist talking to God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book Psalm 56, verse 8, what did the psalmist know about God? He cared. Even in his struggle, even in his sleeplessness, God cared. When you don't want to pray, you then perhaps more than ever absolutely need to pray. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, when we pray, 
I think it's important to recognize what is happening. Sometimes people fall into the lie that the prayer is like cathartic or something. Is it just something for you to do? No, of course not. We have a high priest who understands our weaknesses and sympathizes with our inability and recognizes our temptations. And he wants to hear from us so that he will be able to help us. When you don't want to pray, remember Hebrews Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. You can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you don't want to pray, what do you need? You need mercy. You need grace. You need help. When you don't want to pray, you need to pray. Not only do we pray when we don't want to, when we don't want to, But ninth, we pray what we don't want to. Pray what you don't want to pray. I hear from some of you the heartache of years of struggle, years of failure, years of being bound in depression. And the sentiment is often that I don't want to pray for God to heal me because I don't think that he will. And then I'll be disappointed and then it'll be harder. I get it. I don't want to pray when I don't think God is going to answer. Okay? But Christian, you have to pray what you don't want to. Psalm 51, 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Well, what was David's problem? Well, he, his sin brought about a situation where he had no joy and he was not willing to fight for it. What did he do? He prayed for it. Think he wanted to confess the fact that he knew who God was and yet he would rather find sin? Or Psalm 85, 6, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? You say, well, I've already prayed that and God didn't answer. Understand, friend, every prayer you pray that God doesn't answer in the way you want is an opportunity to choose him even over good things now even over what you should have. When God doesn't answer, we can choose him. So when you pray, God deliver me from despair and he doesn't, what will you do next? He's given you the opportunity to choose him, even over deliverance from something as terrible as a life-dominating sorrow. Will you worship him? Will you love him? Will you long to be in him, with him, and pray again that he would deliver you from despair? When that's how you pray, you show that God is worth even more to you than an earthly deliverance. You can keep praying for deliverance and you must keep praying for deliverance because God will answer someday. God will answer when it's best. Tenth, how about this one? Consider your eschatology. Again, these are all opportunities to help each other, to help ourselves, to pursue growth in the midst of our depression Sometimes we're depressed because we're expecting from God what he hasn't promised to us. We're expecting God to deliver now what he's promised for the future. Don't expect God to give what he hasn't promised and then wallow in the disappointment of not getting what he didn't offer. We have an over-realized eschatology at times. We say things like heaven on earth. Let me tell you what, there is no heaven on earth. It's not here. Heaven is Future. Heaven is coming, but heaven is not now. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is a man that was acquainted with every struggle and 
every circumstance known to man that should have driven him into a deep, terrible despair of depression. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse eight, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul says, yeah, life, life is hard. Yeah, death is coming. Yes, suffering is real. But all of it is how we live for Christ. And in a life of suffering, suffering, in a life of struggling, in a life that's tempting to fall into depression, verse 16, what do we do? Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Suffering, depression, it's real, it's life dominating, it's awful, but it's what? It's going to go. It's transient. So it doesn't feel like it. Well, help your feeling with truth. It's going to go. Imagine Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a biblical example of someone who at times was depressed. And he also had every single reason to be. Imagine his life, what he saw. He saw Babylon was stealing the wealth and the life and the leadership and the future and the very soul of Israel. Babylon was dismantling God's promised land and God's promised people. And what was worse, God came to him and God told Jeremiah, it's coming. It's going to be 70 years. Jeremiah's doing the math. I ain't going to see the end of it. God tells them the worst thing Israel's ever encountered is going to last throughout your lifetime. You will not see the end of it. There was no earthly hope. There was no earthly deliverance. The exile was promised to come, and the same God that promised the exile coming was the God that promised that it would be 70 years. That, my friends, I don't know what you want to call it, that's depressing. There was no earthly hope. Jeremiah and his message was rejected, but Jeremiah, he wrote in Lamentations every day is a new day with new mercies and new hope. Was he missing something or are we? God said you have no earthly hope. Jeremiah's like, new day, new hope. Why? Because God is faithful. God promised deliverance. Jeremiah knew it's coming. Jeremiah was assured Judah would suffer in exile his whole life, and Jeremiah was confident that God would deliver. Why? Because he had good eschatology. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 24, the Lord is my portion, my, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The bottom line to our eschatology is that God wins, and what God deserves, God receives, and what God promises, God delivers. Jeremiah said, yeah, it's coming. I may not feel it. I may not experience it until then, but I know someday I will. God deserves glory. And for eternity, we will be with him to magnify him with our joy by our final and full deliverance. God promises what we want. He just doesn't promise it to us when we want it. It's not now, but then. May not be in your lifetime, but you, you can know that it will come because God has promised it will come. And in its coming, you can still praise him. 
Eleventh, fight. If you're depressed, if you're helping someone who's depressed, you must give them every tool and every opportunity and every option to keep fighting. But I think we should worry about how we're fighting more than how we're feeling. We should worry about if we're fighting more than how we're fighting. Don't give in to the temptation of lies that you can't get out of depression. Where, where is that promised? It isn't. Maybe you've made that promise to yourself. God didn't. Fight. Keep fighting. Deliverance is coming. You can persevere. You can fight. How do you do that? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame as seated at the right hand of the throat of God. Jesus' endurance is the model for our endurance. Jesus set his minds on the future. We set our minds on Christ. We look to him. The future deliverance and death and the, the glory of eternity was enough for our Savior and our King who deserved no difficulty and no suffering. He fought through all of that. He persevered through that. Will you? Keep fighting. One day you'll be delivered from the heartache of your life. Don't give up. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And when you want to give up, remember he didn't. When you want to give up, remember he's your savior, he's your mediator. Even now, he's your king. I love what Paul says, Philippians 3, 12. He had hard things in his life, I'm sure, which we've already kind of looked at. I mean, even as a pastor, his, the crown jewel of his ministry was the church in Corinth. I mean, that had to be depressing. But what does he do? He fights, he perseveres, he fights to make the truth reality in light of the struggle and suffering that he finds himself in. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but, but what? I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There's the motivation, there's the fighting, and there's the reason why, because Jesus has made him his own. Press on, fight. Paul knows its future. Paul knows suffering and struggle is coming, and Paul keeps going. Don't give up, believer. Twelfth, view loneliness as the choice that it is. Sometimes believers feel alone in their discouragement and in their depression. There's two reasons you shouldn't, Jesus and others. Practically, we can look around and find believers feeling the same thing. If you feel like you're depressed, I'm just going to guess you're not the only one. Theologically, we can look up we can see our king, sinless, perfect, and what? How's he described? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus knows the feeling as we teeter on the edge of understanding and comprehending something worthy of our sorrow and the temptation it is to go farther and fall into not being able to get out, Jesus knows that feeling. In fact, I think Jesus knows that feeling better than any of us because Jesus is perfect and everything unrighteous set him into sorrow, I guarantee. He grieved and mourned over ugly and terrible things his whole life. Why? Because he was the only one that saw righteousness perfectly and sin perfectly. Jesus understands your struggle. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 reminds us that Jesus is just like us. Your good Christology tells you Jesus was fully God, absolutely and fully man, truly God, truly man. He's one of us. He felt loss. He felt pain. He felt disappointment. He felt sorrow. He felt anger. He felt isolation. He felt rejection. All those things that drive us to depression, he felt. And what did he do with them? He turned to his heavenly father. What should you do? Turn to him. Find help from him in your time of need. Your loneliness, friend, is a choice. Jesus offers you himself. Go to him. Maybe you say, why? I need someone like me that's been through my mess to help me. Well, I think fellowship is necessary. It's required. Absolutely, we should pursue it. But don't buy the lie that shared experience is the only way you can fellowship. Unless you want to buy, unless you want to think like we all have the shared experience that we need, we've been taken from death to life. We must engage in fellowship. Maybe you feel like, well, I can't fellowship because I have nothing to offer. You don't need to offer something. You need to offer yourself. There are times when none of us have something to offer in fellowship. We don't fellowship because of what we bring to the table, because of what we offer to someone else. We fellowship because we love our Savior. And loving Him makes us love each other. We're called to be known by our love. Isolation and love are impossible to achieve congruously. Loneliness is a choice, and perpetual loneliness is often likely a sin. Be careful. Reach out. Ask for help. And when others offer, take it. 13, embrace correction. Everyone's favorite topic. Embrace correction. When you feel the weight of depression in its many forms, don't allow the loving rebuke of a brother or sister to seem as though it's not a good thing. Can it be harsh? Can it be too much? Can it be insensitive? Can it be all those things? At times, absolutely. At times, I've been guilty of all of them. But if you are only going to allow yourself to grow from someone with perfect instruction, a brother or sister who knows you perfectly, shares your experience perfectly, and is able to perfectly instruct you, here's my tip for you. You will never grow. You won't find that person. Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. But a good word makes him glad. We need somebody to come along with a good word and give us hope and life. Or how about Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11 and 12? A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in the setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Two things there that we need, a wise reprover and a listening ear. Maybe for a moment I can talk to those of us who never experienced depression or those of us who have experienced depression and been able to move past depression. Don't use this truth that we should all embrace correction as an excuse for insensitivity and a lack of gentleness. Your brother or sister struggling with depression very likely does not need the Wyatt Earp of biblical counseling. Grace guard, take a moment off. Don't shoot back. But you know those kind of people. Oh, you're depressed? Psalm 42, 43. I got you. Oh, you're depressed? Romans 8. I got you. Oh, you're still depressed? Probably not saved. Don't be like that. 
What do we do? Come alongside our brothers and sisters. Galatians chapter 6, we bear each other's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We must make sure as we take on the responsibility that Christ has given us to bring correction and bring help to those who struggle to do it with care and gentleness that he empowers us to do. Sure, speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. Speak the truth with grace. Speak the truth with kindness. Speak the truth over time. Sometimes that means more listening than talking. Sometimes that means just praying for a few days. After all, if you don't know their heart, and you haven't investigated what's going on, what are you correcting? What are you encouraging? What are you offering? I wouldn't make this a hard and fast rule, but if you're not praying for someone and likely praying with someone, you should be careful about correcting someone. How do you know what you're correcting if you're not begging the Lord for help? You don't need Wyatt Earp. You need Jesus For all of us, we should embrace correction. It's no different for someone gripped by sorrow. Embrace correction. That's God's help to you, not his hurt of you. 14, don't take a free pass on obedience. Too often, obedience is the missing piece that can focus our hearts off of ourself and onto Christ. Maybe you say, but I'm suffering. I can't do everything. God doesn't ask you to do everything. He asks you to do something for him. Say, I'm suffering. I can't see beyond my needs that are overwhelming. Well, if you're depressed, you're suffering. I agree. But can I ask you, who is the New Testament written to? In large part, the New Testament is written to suffering Christians. Imagine moms who had seen their children sold into slavery and unable to protect them. And they get a letter from Peter. Imagine wives of pagan husbands who practice every form of evil and they get a letter from Paul. Imagine dads who watched their family suffer because they couldn't get jobs that paid because they worshiped only Christ and not Caesar and they get a letter from James. Imagine husbands who watched their wife starve rather than deny Christ and they get a letter from John. People that got these letters and Receive this book. We're suffering Christians. It's for us when we suffer. It's a manual for suffering. And what does it so often tell you? That in your suffering, you obey Christ. Our obedience is for our good. You may not feel like it, but again, what do you need to do? Let the truth inform your feelings. You're suffering and your heart is deceitful. Who should you believe? I'd believe Jesus. The one and others. You say, well, they're overwhelming. Okay. And? The Great Commission. You say, well, I can't see beyond myself. Imagine the early church saying, we'll do the whole missions thing once we get life established and settled. There would be no early church. Friend, if that's you, you're living in the flesh and not pursuing obedience in the spirit. Embrace that correction and follow God's word and obey, even in the midst of suffering. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul was suffering. Paul was struggling with something that God had given him. People guess everything from blindness to arthritis to depression. 
some sort of a thing called, that he calls, the thorn in the flesh. He begs God to relieve his suffering three times. Three times God answers, nope. Three times Paul's prayer is not answered the way Paul wants. But in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, Paul tells us why. God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul continues, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Christian, don't fear the limitations that your depression may put on your obedience. Instead, pursue obedience in the spirit by grace for Christ, even with the struggles that you have. Serve when you don't want to and beg God's grace to be sufficient. Pray when God doesn't answer. God will do what's best. Obey when you're tired, knowing God's strength comes and covers your weakness. Don't take a pass of obedience and depression. Obedience often is God's medicine for our soul. 15, praise God for what he says is good. You don't have to feel like it, but you must praise him. And in praising him, you may find what you're looking for. Turn to Psalm 66. Psalm 66, a beautiful psalm with plenty of struggle. Plenty of struggle because it's a psalm that talks about the the Hebrews' formation of the nation of Israel. But in all of God's uh, deliverance and all of their struggle, we find man in need of God's deliverance. Psalm 66.10. Well, 66.5. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. That's the good part. The struggle comes later. Psalm 66, 10. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. Even our suffering and depression is not beyond God's ability to redeem. If you're there, look at 11 and 12. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. You went through fire. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. Well, I'm not sure about how this figurative language matches up to depression, but I'm, I'm sure some of you have struggled through those things in your depression. Are you trusting God to bring you to that, to that place of abundance, to bring you out Psalm 66, 20, blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. You see, we have to remember God has not fallen out of control in our hardship. Instead, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8, 28. Praise God that he's using your struggles for what he says is good. He's a good and loving God. You can trust him. Even when it feels like your struggles can't be for good, he says they are, so praise him. Verse 16, trust God to use your struggle. There's so many ways God can use and redeem our struggle. Maybe you relate to someone who feels alone. You can say, I understand. Maybe you have compassion for those who struggle uniquely. You say, hey, all I know is I don't understand, but other people don't understand me, and we can not be understood together. There's, There's opportunities there But God will use your struggle. Imagine what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Either Jesus lied or Matthew 5, 3 and 4 says your struggle is not in vain. I don't know exactly what all this is, how it relates exactly to depression. 
but it can't be less than depression there. I'm sure it's more. The poor in spirit, obviously, they're impoverished and understanding they're completely destitute before the Lord. They recognize their lack of spiritual resources, but the depressed person often stops there. Don't stop there with your spiritual poverty. See what the reward is. What's the reward? It's him, his kingdom. Those who mourns, what's the reward? Him having his comfort. Does God waste your suffering? Of course not. Then you shouldn't either, friend. Depression is real suffering, yet God redeems suffering. He uses it for our good to shape us and for his ends to glorify him. All suffering for the believer has a common end. doesn't matter how you suffer. What the level of your suffering is, it has a common end. You know what it is? Lastly, think theologically about your suffering. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. What do we all know about all of our suffering? One day it'll stop. For the believer, there is no suffering that lasts. It may last the day. It may last the next season of life. It may last the rest of your life. But praise God, it will not last forever. Every good theology of suffering reminds us the suffering has a shelf life. There's an expiration date stamped on it. Your depression will one day expire. God has guaranteed it. it. May not be the day you want, but someday it will be gone. Even if that someday is the final day when Jesus calls you to himself. Someday depression will give way to glory. The God who can never leave you nor forsake you has promised to complete you, Philippians 1.6. And this struggle and suffering and despair and sorrow will not be forever. Instead, it will be the backdrop for, for your ever, forever praise of a God who holds you and keeps you and has glorified you. I wonder, why are we glorified? Sometimes we answer good reasons that we're glorified, like we won't sin. Praise the Lord. We're glorified so uh, we won't suffer. Again, praise the Lord. But why are we glorified? So that we can behold God face to face. Revelation chapter 21 Verses 1 to 5, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a man with a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Then what? Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. One day, even the darkness and sorrow that you feel that you can't escape will be gone forever. Forever, the light that you long for now will be your life. Forever the joy that you hope you just get a taste of will be forever yours. You can hang on. You can wait. You can put that hope in the front of your mind and every day live for that hope. But how can we be sure of that hope? How? Because of what we celebrate now. As the men come forward, we worship our king who died in our place, taking our sin taking our shame and giving us life, but not just life now, life for when, life forever, life for what, life to be with him. Why? Because our own, we could never achieve it. But what we needed, he did. 
He took our sin, gave us his righteousness so that one day we can know we'll be with him forever face to face.